0: Studs, a podcast about working. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for joining me. If you haven't yet listened to the introduction to season one, please go ahead and do so. Go on. I'm waiting. The introduction dives into the threefold mission of this podcast and tells you a bit about me. The short story is Studs Explores and Honors Working. It also seeks to honor the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And, in an effort to close the social distance, Studs allows me to engage with my people. This episode of Studs features a conversation with Jana John. Jana was my student in Berlin over a decade ago, and I'm really grateful that we stayed in touch. She's the rare specimen who brings her whole self to the table Every time. Fully present. She's just so consistently beaming with energy and ideas, I knew I had to get her onto studs. She's a yoga teacher in Milwaukee. She's had to climb some pretty steep, rugged hills lately. We talk about how yoga prepared her for a harrowing, near-fatal accident that left her physically decimated, but spiritually strong as ever. And we get into why she prefers Bikram yoga and how the downfall of Bikram chowdhury clouds, but clarifies her commitment to her practice. It was such a joy to spend some time with her, and I hope you enjoy this deep dive into the working life of Yana John. Yana John, I am grateful to have you in my world, thrilled to have you on the podcast True Life Confession. I slugged an extra shot of espresso just to do my part to keep up with your frenetic, contagious energy. Yana, tell me about how your yoga practice developed, how you became a yoga teacher, and please start from the beginning.
1: Um, My mom was kind of big into the world of yoga back in the 90s uh, and its intersection with meditation and kind of her own spiritual practice. And so uh, my whole childhood, she was uh, in a kids yoga class when I was eight. And I think at the time I thought it was fun, you know, you're eight and you're a rubber band. And so like, as far as the asana, so the the physical practice, the postures go came pretty easily to me as, as it does most... Uh, children who are lucky enough to have able bodies in that in that bendy, gumby kind of way. But I think that it's so good for kids in the uh, just the aspect of focus and concentration and breath and slowing down, which, uh, believe it or not, as rapidly as I move through speech and life, um, I think I've come a long way. I remember going upside down when I was little and just hanging, you know, in, in so many of the inversions and just feeling like, oh, here's where the world stops. Here's where I can do my best thinking and I can get away from some of that anxiety that was already starting to tangle up as like a second grader. This is something where I know I can just find a sense of self, even though we do so much work on kind of shedding the ego. It always felt like a safe space. And I feel really lucky to say that um, as many kind of teachers and influences as I then interfaced with later on, like it... I feel very fortunate that it did continue to feel like a safe space. So I then moved back to Milwaukee in my junior year, which was always kind of the plan. continued to develop my um, Ashtanga and Vinyasa-based yoga practice. So Ashtanga is um, a lineage that I won't be getting into as much today, but it was sort of The root of my more formulated yoga practice, vinyasa, is the flow that is probably most prominent and most heavily marketed in kind of the 21st century image of what yoga is, is moving through a sort of one breath, one movement flow sequence, which can differ from studio to studio, class by class, and teacher by teacher, uh, is also not the the form of yoga that I focus as much on anymore, which leads me to uh, my First experience with Bikram yoga, which I'll describe in a moment, but uh, it sort of comes full circle with my relationship to my mom and to yoga. And I was Thanksgiving of my senior year of high school and I was 18 and was definitely at just maybe one of like my highest... Uh, peaks of anxiety and uh, body image and <laughs> fluctuations and labels of eating disorders and all of these different things that were kind of converging. And it was 6 a.m. and she was like, I found this new practice and it's amazing. I got us an intro special and you have to come with me. And I overdressed, took up for class, and I just i don't like to use the word hate ever, but I really think that for me, At the time, that's what it felt like. And I think it was uh, really the manifestation of my feelings about myself at the time and probably my like adolescent relationship to my mom, who I felt like had dragged me here and body image and so many things that were all coming to a head. And I just felt like, this is ridiculous. This is too hot. I can't breathe. How am I supposed to practice yoga? If I can't breathe, this is militaristic. All of these things that I kind of left there thinking... And uh, continued with my other styles of yoga then was like, that's not for me. Screw that. That's not real yoga. Jumped to a couple of years later, well, a year later, I guess. And then New York still doing kind of my solo practice in my dorm room. And I, um, a friend had directed me to Yoga to the People, which was a donation base at the time seeming all-inclusive, uh, just really wholesome yoga community in the heart of New York City. It just was the, was the place that I like was able to escape campus and go to and felt like I finally had found all of the things that I thought I was going to be met with right away when I uh, got to college. The community and the connection and the sense of purpose and wholeness that I felt when I was at that studio was like, oh, this is what I thought College was going to be. That became then my safe space. And so, sophomore year of college, that would have been in 2012, I decided I want more of this. I want to be here all the time. This is what I want my focus to be. So, I decided to enroll in their teacher training, which for me was just an amazing kind of experience of growth. Like, I want everyone to have this. And I think at the time that was like a a little bit narrow minded, but it was. It was kind of a grand plan for where I was at then. So I, you know, invested in the teacher training and um, continued with school on the side, but definitely felt like uh, the teacher training was like my real college experience. And so moved back to Milwaukee, not really uh, sure how New York would pan out um, as far as like my theater um, ambitions. And so I came back to Milwaukee to kind of figure some things out very quickly got involved in the uh, Bikram Yoga Studio in Milwaukee. It's now called Hot Yoga Milwaukee. And that was where I really was able to cut my teeth and kind of find my footing as um, a teacher. I no longer work there, but I am forever grateful for kind of that that early stage of cultivating my voice. As a teacher, yeah, that's kind of the foundational first 10 years for yeah.
0: Can you dive a little bit into how yoga has served as a form of therapy for you.
1: In kind of those years that I was talking about, it was a way of finding a space in which to take a breath. I was never conscious of my breathing or any sort of self-regulation at all in my inter and intrapersonal kind of uh relationships and interactions and my esteem just as a developing young adult. And I think that yoga was like the hour, hour or two where I could just take a second to reflect and also to heal, even if I didn't realize I was doing it uh, at the time, just from some of my my own kind of self-destructive tendencies. Um, I mentioned those kind of more vague pieces because it leads into how uh, in 2016, when I was already teaching but i feel like this was you know a pretty monumental thing that definitely shifted my relationship with the yoga with uh the practice and with my teaching then is that in 2016 about 6 months after i moved back to Milwaukee after college i was in a brutal car accident um which i don't go out of my way to talk about unless it's relevant which i feel like you know it happens to be in relation to just the focus of this conversation um We were T-boned and I was in um, just like the hot spot of the car. And so I broke just about every bone in my body, Uh, several vertebrae, skull, ribs, and my whole pelvis was pretty much splinters, Um, which I emphasize without exaggerating, just because I think that if that paints a picture... It really speaks to, I think, what the yoga was able to do for me, both in preparation for something I didn't know was going to happen, which was the accident. Um, I think that in teaching as much as I was and therefore spending as much time in the heat um, and in the practice that I was at the time, I like probably couldn't have been in a better physical position to um, have gotten beat up pretty badly. Uh, pretty severe brain injury, uh, collapsed lung Lacerated kidneys liver all of that that good stuff that I was lucky enough and young enough to have healed Total
0: nightmare situation
1: yeah a total nightmare situation
0: Can you talk about how y- yoga helped you to heal?
1: I have to believe that the relationship to the breath that I developed through the practice in the years prior has to have helped with my my brain maintaining the amount of oxygen that it was able to in, the, in those moments and hours and days I don't remember. So I think that was a really big lead up. And then getting back into the hot room was slow. But even before I remembered other things or some of my memories started to come back or my vocabulary, I um, knew that I needed to be back in the hot room. And so my lovely mother, who was basically my home nurse, would drive me to the studio in a neck brace and a body brace. And I would just lay there in that room, just lay there. Mm. And I felt like I was getting so much out of the practice, just by laying there for 90 minutes and really listening to the words and listening to the people around me.
0: What were you getting out of the practice?
1: It was the first time that I think I started to feel like an individual again, and started to be able to hold space for my thoughts, I was able to just lay there and just start for the first time to reflect on the past months of just like this life-changing experience that I never really got a chance to have any kind of perspective on because from the second anything had happened, I was surrounded by a really loving and incredible medical and personal community Um became very much about making sure that everyone knew that I was okay, that other people weren't worried. Don't worry. I know I'm in body braces in a hospital bed, but like, I'm fine. It's fine. Don't be sad just being in that space with myself was just this time where I didn't have to ask for help. I didn't have to reassure anyone that I was okay. Oh my gosh. I get to just be me for a little while Mm. and be with myself. It's
0: been about four years. May I ask how's, how's your health?
1: I have moments where I struggle a little bit more to, uh, connect to a certain memory or to find certain words. I think that's the the part of the brain injury that I still noticed a little bit. I
0: should say listeners will find it almost impossible to believe.
1: <laughs> and who knows, maybe I'm just, maybe this is just something I tell myself, you know, maybe it's also like, thank you. I, I appreciate it. Um, And I still, you know, I had some pretty serious uh, nerve damage in my face related to a severed cranial nerve that i still get regular treatments for um, it's slightly annoying but who cares like my face and my body work it's just minutia. um i have a couple of ri- ribs that are like sticking out a little bit for fun they look like a funky art piece that you know they won't reveal um i feel sticking out for fun yeah like whatever and i'm not trying to sound like this like walking ball of gratitude because i definitely have my moments i have to say that i like wouldn't change it for the world actually it's helped define a lot of my sense of purpose that i'm still like trying to find it's not like i have it figured out now but it was such a necessary leap in no particular direction, which was like uh, such a gift and any little aches and pains and irritations and going to the hospital every five months that I still have to do is just like a nice little reminder of this experience that forever kind of changed the way that I experienced myself. And it, it made time stand still for a little while, which was an experience I had only ever had on my yoga mat before, you know? Mm. And it was an extended extended period of time.
0: So that's where the Venn diagram between near-fatal car accidents and yoga. <laughs> yeah. Totally, yeah. How long after this traumatic near-fatal accident was it before you could start doing yoga? And then how long after that were you able to start teaching it?
1: i mean uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about bikram yoga and then i can kind of tie that in this is a 26 posture and two breathing exercise uh yoga yoga practice it spans 90 minutes Uh, we do everything twice and these postures uh in the series and the sequence that they have been put together and formulated really do target every organ system muscle ligament joint bone in the body in order to create tourniquet effects, so to speak, throughout. It's a series of compression and expansion that allows then those parts of the body to be immediately flushed with high-speed, freshly oxygenated blood. It's performed typically in a room that is 105 degrees that is Fahrenheit with 40% humidity. Those conditions allow the body to open up pretty immediately in ways that make these postures really safe and accessible. And by safe and accessible, I don't mean that every first-timer is expected to be able to... Hate to use the word perform because that's not what it is, but perform for themselves, these postures uh, in their full expression. But it means that with time and repetition and focus and attention, these benefits can be achieved even in the most kind of minimal, even invisible first steps of these postures. So the teacher actually does not perform any of these postures. It is a really individual practice. Of course, it's done with a group, but it's not one of those yoga classes, so to speak, that you might walk into, um, that you seek out for the teacher necessarily. For me, that was such an important piece of being able to acknowledge where I was at because I couldn't go to a class and then say like, well, that was a really hard class because those postures were different and I wasn't expecting that. And well, you never know what's going to come next. And I really was able to see where I was at, you know, because that the practice remains the same. Um, all of that is to say the teacher doesn't, Do the postures. I will pause the class here and there and demonstrate something if I feel like it will really, really be helpful. If I, on that particular day or with a certain student or setting, am struggling to stand back and help them with my words. If that, you know, if something is getting a little bit lost in translation or if I feel like the visual would just really put some pieces together for them, then that happens from time to time. But it's rare. I might approach a student without any hands-on adjustments or assists, and sort of show them, you know, a way to adjust their grip so that a few other things that I know that they're capable of in their body come together. Because I think that in this practice, there's a lot of minutia that uh, even if you have a wrist twist in the wrong direction, you might then feel like, oh, this posture is impossible. Then I can't do this whole other piece of it and if I tell you hey actually open your palm this way then that might be like that leap into them feeling like hey my body actually my body and my mind are capable of just coming to my mat and meeting this practice hey to get back to your initial question I was able to teach pretty quickly I I started teaching again about three months after the accident because I could just go in there sit on a chair and teach it which was really beautiful.
0: Tell, tell me about that. That's, that's fascinating. Like, you know, you, um, you're sitting on the chair, Yeah. probably in the front of the class. Mm-hmm. I'd imagine that a lot of your students missed you. I'd imagine that they were thrilled to see you. They were excited to have you and you're just po- posted up yep. on a, on the cart chair in the front of the class.
1: Yeah. So I think luckily I was at a point where I kind of come to terms. I was used to people's questions. I mean, the community was amazing at the studio at the time, but I was like used to the fact that like, okay, well, it's pretty obvious that like something happened here. Um, Half of my face didn't work. I had a Bell's palsy like effects because of the brain injury. And that took a lot of time to start to reheal. That was hard because I couldn't move half of my mouth and you are talking for a 90 minutes straight and, uh, in very many ways, very quickly, the students start to lead this practice. Um, I'm there to guide, but I felt lucky to be able to teach really quickly, which I wouldn't have been able to in a practice that insists that the teacher
0: do the postures with the students. So you are at this point able to teach near your potential. Is that safe to say a couple years after
1: I have a long way to go in my practice, but as far as doing the posture correctly to show a student how to access it and then get the most benefits out of a posture or a moment in the practice for their body, I'm at 100%. As far as expanding my personal teaching and my personal practice, I feel like I'm just getting started. Mm -hmm. So for what students ask of me and need me to be, I'm all the way there. I'm really lucky to say. The studio that I was first teaching at for a while, the studio that I went back to teaching at after the accident was a big studio. We had two rooms, many teachers, many different styles of classes were being taught. I was teaching at most five classes a day, at least one a day. I was teaching anywhere from 10 to 20 a week, and that went on for a couple of years. Now, about two years ago, I had the opportunity to follow one of my mentors from that first studio. She didn't agree with a lot of the changes and the watering down that that studio was uh, insisting upon. We were no longer allowed to teach the specifics of the Beacon practice that we felt were really essential. And so she broke off and found a way to open her own Bikram Yoga Studio and asked me to join her. And so I was really, really lucky to be able to co-open that studio with her. And then we're based on a loan. We were renting this small space in kind of like a, a business building and just were able to kind of try to lay down a path from there. And I, it was like the perfect experience for me because I don't think that at the time I would have been like, I want to open my own business. But when she, she sort of had that dream for herself and knew that she couldn't do it alone, it was like, hey are you game? And I was like, am I ever? Absolutely. And so that was lovely. Um, all of this is to say really a much smaller studio. And there were only two of us to start. We then accumulated a few more teachers and, but we didn't, we didn't know how things were going to go right away. And you're paying for <laughs> heat and for, you know, keeping the lights on and all of these things. There's a lot that you don't necessarily foresee. And then you realize when you need to,
0: And you can't skimp on the heat.
1: You cannot skimp on the heat, right? And uh, so we were teaching like all the classes. That being said, we didn't have nearly as many classes as that first studio was able to offer. So therefore, I was teaching one a day, sometimes two a day. And then we got a few more teachers. I I was working another job on the side to kind of make ends meet um, in the service industry. And so was she. And so we were able to sort of juggle that.
0: Can I ask, did your mentor go off on her own way having something to do with controversies around bikram itself we don't have to dive into it but according to various accounts uh the namesake of your preferred style of yoga bikram shoutari is a, a rapist a racist a homophobe a thief and kind of a thug i will we openly admit to you that my investigations while not exactly painstaking make me loathe every fiber of this guy's being and the press and the courts have had their say uh, and much <laughs> much has been said and we don't have to litigate that here we shouldn't litigate it here but but I do have to ask you what's your assessment of Bikram the man like how have you grappled with new evidence about him and like, what does that mean for you and this practice that's done so much to kind of
1: bring you back to life in a way? I'm not going to like try to skim it off by of saying like, well, it's complicated. and No, I mean, it's not. It's like pretty simple. All of what you said, I very much believe to be true. But I think that people are not only complex. I don't mean that they're complex. I don't mean like, well, he really is a good guy. And it's just suffering. No, like you did just unspeakable things that none of us were aware of upon going to training or any of any of that. I guess what I'm trying to say is he grew up in India and his guru asked him to bring this practice to the States and to spread it everywhere. He did that. And for any number of psychological or really corrupt reasons that got way out of hand, a lot of people ended up getting really hurt. I think it's something we're all grappling with, but I I do have to say that, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have experienced the healing benefits of that. And it really, for lack of a more elegant term, it really sucks that all of that was part of it. I have benefited from it and that's nauseating. But also I think that unfortunately people are many, many things and I'm not ready for his crimes to take that out like take this practice away from me or from any of us. And I think that the fixation, and I don't mean you and I don't mean most people, but I think the fixation on attaching his name to this practice and then discrediting the practice because of that is understandably short-sighted. And I think it speaks to an unfortunate lack of experience with the practice. And I think it's become harder and harder to try to help people try this out. Because it's so loaded emotionally and politically, and rightfully so. I wish that the money hadn't gone towards his organization at the time. I didn't know any better, but it did. And I would change his actions for the world. I wouldn't change that experience for the world. I guess I feel both lucky and guilty that I feel like I reaped, I reaped the good of it, you know? And that is what I will insist on continuing to teach my students.
0: And I asked two really small questions about yeah. that, and then we should probably move on. Yeah, we should probably move on from it. Um, mm-hmm. Small question number one: uh, Do you continue to call your practice Bikram?
1: Uh, yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, we do, um, and then you
0: know my second question, right? Uh, why? Well, yeah, kind of. Is that uh, is that is that honoring someone that? should not be honored.
1: So we have gone back and forth about this and it's still kind of on the table. And this is not a definitive answer. This is a, we are figuring it out as we go. And we're also not trying to like cover anything up or cloud anything. Most people still don't know that Beekering is a person. So it has been this interesting kind of conversation about like, well, he gave something to us and then through his actions, took it away. And that felt so violent. And he has since, you know, experienced those repercussions. His training is no longer happening. He no longer has a stronghold on any studios around the world. He has gone into hiding. There is also a discussion going on about like, maybe we can like take this word back really soon or now or already moving away from it is uh, a powerful choice to wipe his name as much as we can. But it's also kind of then, I think, like a disowning of a very real history. And I feel like it would be shying away from some of the conversations that students deserve for us to have with them. It's sort of like, if you think of him as, not to give him this much power, but as like a father figure who wronged his thousands of children. Then it's like, what do you do? Change your last name? Maybe. But are we all going to change it to the same thing? You know, I, somebody made the kind of the point, although I, I get that it's, uh, we're talking about a difference, you know, different centuries, but about like the founding fathers being <laughs> rapists and slave owners and all of these things. And it's like, are we going to change every Jefferson monument or street name? Maybe. Yeah, probably we should. And let's figure out like how to do that while still taking the pieces of history that got us here.
0: There's obviously, uh, a Venn diagram to be drawn between other historical figures who have committed uh, heinous atrocities and Bikram Chowdhury uh, who's done so in much more contemporary times. First, I'm grateful that you're willing to talk with me about it. Second, uh, I, I don't think we have to, you know, go much further into it or further into it at all. But third, I do feel obliged to say to you that I'm, I'm really sorry that this happened to you. And while uh, you're a self-reported beneficiary of Bikram Chowdhury, and other people are his victims and it's much worse for the victims than it is for you, you're a victim of his as well. And I'm really sorry that you have to grapple with all of this. I trust that you will do so uh, with the dignity and the kindness and the grace and empathy that you bring to every other aspect of your life. So let's, let's get off that one, shall we? You put a lot of thought and heart and passion into your, your craft, into your work. What does it take to become a great yoga instructor?
1: You gotta be a student first. The second your practice goes out the window, it's kind of like, forget about it.
0: Yana, I know that you see this as a lifelong practice, and I think it's really humbling and beautiful that you appreciate that it might just take several lifetimes to become a great yoga instructor. But in this lifetime and in the foreseeable future, what's an an aptitude you would like to refine
1: to make you a better instructor? I think my answer is, twofold and there might be like an a b c under each of those numbers a in my physical asana practice i've had the luxury of flexibility i ha- it's, it's not that i haven't had to work on it i mean i the back bends take effort that's not like i was born with that but i think you know my my constitution definitely like leans in that direction more so than strength and more of the um Advanced and complex directions that the practice can go in. So I feel like I, for a long time, was getting away with um, just like continuing to just maintain like my special thing that I could do. Like, oh, I'm really good at backbends, and I'm just going to keep doing these to always be good at them, and they look cool in pictures. I, I am looking into really getting into spaces that feel uncomfortable and that feel really foreign. And um, in doing things that are really challenging for me, I really have found teachers now and found ways where I feel like I am back to like ground zero and it's awesome. That's my first answer. And then my second is that um, it doesn't have to be for everyone and that's fine. And I don't think that everyone's relationship to their yoga asana practice has to be one of this like overwhelming sense of spirituality it doesn't it's not mandatory by any means you want to keep focusing on the deeper layers so some chakra work for sure
0: it's really inspiring for me to hear you talk about your not just your willingness but your desire to start as you say from ground zero to have toddler brain oh yeah to remain humble and to make this a a lifelong endeavor, total goosebumps over here, which is a great place to begin to wrap up. But we can't wrap up without stumbling through two hallmarks of this here podcast. I always ask my guests to tell the stories of a professional failure and a professional triumph. Let's do it in that order so that we can end with triumph. Tell me about a time where it all went cattywampus, Yana, and then correct that with a professional triumph. Ooh. You, you can tell, if you want to, you can tell the story about the time that you pooped your yoga pants in, in front of the largest class you've ever had.
1: You said you were never going to tell, you said you were never going to mention that to anyone.
0: I said I would never mention it to anyone. I never said <laughs> I would never mention it to...
1: To any many. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, no. So I, in one of the first classes that I taught, um, I was so focused on just getting the words out that I just like wasn't teaching. You know, I was. It was like I was like reading a script in my head. I had a student pass out, uh, which is not common, um, and luckily, you know, we had the the pieces in place to like take care of her. But I like I was not in a position. I could not deal with any any kind of distraction, let alone like medical emergency. And uh, we had enough of like a system in place and she was fine. Like it was, it was all okay. I'm sounding dramatic, but it was like that. Then it was already, I was getting ahead of myself. I was, and I just got completely caught off guard. A wrench was thrown into the middle of the class. A different teacher had to take over. And then I just remember I had to like join the class and practice it instead. And it was just like this very necessary humiliation, not that anyone else was making me feel that way, but how could I not as a human? And it just felt like, oh, I'm not cut out for this.
0: Oh, that's brutal. Well, you're clearly cut out for it. Let's try to temper that story of failure with a more heartening tale of triumph.
1: I won't go on about it, but there is an asana competition. A lot of people take issue with that because it's like, yeah, yoga is not supposed to be competitive. And, you know, it's supposed to be this peaceful. It's not you're competing with no one but yourself. It is this really exciting challenge. It's a way to work with um, mentors and teachers to really fine tune um, your relationship with your practice and with yourself, and um, I was not able to carry out the uh, on-stage part of the competition. But for a while, I was, or I was training with a teacher in New York to put together my sequence to compete. And I hope to pick that up again next year. It sounds really superficial, but I feel so excited to have taken that step. Can
0: I ask? Are you motivated in part by like a triumphant recovery from staring death in the face.
1: Yes. And uh, as I've said, as far as my practice and my teaching, I have so far to go. I I do feel really lucky that I feel like I have reached the points that it sounds really self-centered, but that I already wouldn't have expected to reach. So now this is like new goals. And of course the accident has um, just, yeah, for sure influenced so much of that, but at the time it wasn't like, and now my goal is to recover in such a way that I can then go above and beyond whatever. It was like, my goal is to get back to where I was.
0: The second thing that I can't let you scram without responding to, make a recommendation for a person who I should try to get on the podcast, or if you prefer just a, a particular profession that you'd like to learn about surprise i got bikram chowdery on the line
1: hilarious no no it's (laughs) that won't be necessary um no no but uh yeah funny and i'm gonna i'm gonna um
0: you can tell me to fuck myself
1: not at all um i would be really interested to hear the account of um i don't know any but hey maybe a police officer um, and then I would also be interested to hear some firsthand accounts of doctors, emergency room workers, paramedics, perhaps, who have been working at a 1,000% capacity over the past three months. Either or.
0: Jana, I cannot thank you enough for your willingness to make time for me and to bring your full, unbridled vibrant self i am so grateful to have the opportunity just to have you in my life after all the all these years and to listen to you talk about your relationship not just to your work although this is a podcast about working but your relationship to your practice my my gratitude runs deep and I I know you don't need to hear this. I know that there was like this moment where you could have been taken from us. And every time I think about that, it uh, it just makes me really, really emotional. It's really hard for me to to imagine this world without you. So I'm not only glad that you are with us, but that you uh, have something that you're so passionate about and that you are willing to be vulnerable with and in. So thank you for, for that and for being with me. I look forward to being with you soon.
1: And uh, the gratitude is returned tenfold. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. There you have it, folks.
0: Yana John. She's amazing,
1: right? So much
0: energy. Totally effervescent. Delivers. So present. It was a pleasure to check in with her and it breaks me, shatters me to think of a world where that accident took her out, but she's a survivor. Dude, this podcasting thing is forcing me to sit in front of a computer ad nauseum. I got to get into some yoga. I definitely got to get into some yoga. Yeah, probably not now though. All right. So subscribe. Leave a like, offer a comment, and pretty please, with sugar on top, help me honor working and share studs with your people, your friends, your family, neighbors. If you like it, share it. That's all I'm saying. I didn't ask you. I didn't want to ask you, but I have to ask you. Were you ever in a room with Bikram Chowdhury?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, face-to-face all the time, like personal conversations. Oh, all the time. I mean, he taught almost every class at training. And then we would have meals with him and lectures and uh, posture clinics. Yep.
0: Yana, you have a pretty good sense of people and you're very attuned to people. Did your alarm bells go off at all?
1: No, that's a great question. So I went to training at an interesting time. It was in 2017 and it was after the initial, he had already been confronted with the initial allegations, but the media had not, it was not public. I think there was a sense of secrecy um, among the higher ups and within the staff But what I realize now is that he was already in like phase whatever of um, saving face. And so I think that his small but like higher up staff and his, you know, like right hand people, they were already very much on him for like reining it the hell the heck in. You know, he was already on thin ice. We just didn't know it yet. And so I think that I, um, thank goodness in a way, thank goodness he didn't, you know, keep getting away with it. But thank goodness, like this was the version of him that I interacted very closely with is that he was already like reining in all of this stuff. So that was interesting. As you could tell that there were like inner workings of a lot of stuff that we didn't know. The lens was already on him. And I think that he was at that time it was this weird transitional period where he was already like oh shit I'm I'm high risk
0: did you find him to be <sighs> otherworldly did you find him to be profoundly engaging did you get a sense for the enigma that He, in some ways, was, is.
1: Totally. He feels like, he feels ancient and both modern. I feel like he, uh, he almost feels like a vampire, actually, to be perfectly honest. Like, he's been around for centuries. Um, And it also feels like he has x-ray vision. Like, he understood bodies, as it pertained to this practice, but like I I saw him like heal people and I don't mean waving his hand over their heart chakra, but I just mean like I saw him fix people's injuries that they had had for years. We went to a nine week training, highly intensive. He told them to do something that no other teacher would ever be like, hey, this might hurt, do it. And then we'll see what happens. And then people did it because he has this way about him where you listen and then they were better. And then they had overcome something huge, even though it seemed mean at first. And so that was a weird thing to grapple with. And I felt like he was mysterious and that was what was really like, it was this enigma. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe that is part of like his ability to just compartmentalize these heinous acts with like the way that I don't know. It's saying charisma feels like it's almost cheapening it, which he kind of deserves to have things cheapened. Do you kind of love him? Yeah. It's like so scary. It's like, I I think that, I mean, and I I feel so lucky that I, I don't consider myself to have been abused in any way.